for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. Gerard Manley Hopkins from God's Grandeur. Welcome to the Deep Down Things podcast, a partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Join us for a deep dive into Catholic thought, culture, and everything in between as we explore the depths of God's grandeur. Welcome to Deep Down Things. I'm Dave Devo, Professor of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas and Editor of Logos, the Journal of Catholic Thought and Culture. And I'm here with my co-host, uh, Liz Kelly, former Managing Editor of Logos and speaker and writer uh, and artist of various sorts. Liz, how are you doing today? Great. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, we have a great show today. We have Bradley Cipher. Uh, who's the author of a recent article in Logos, Towards a Thomistic Appraisal of Addiction. Uh, Bradley, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. First of all, Dave, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I am currently a doctoral candidate in theology at Ave Maria University, uh, and I am writing a dissertation, as it happens, about addiction, um, which the article sort of came out of my initial research. Um, I'm a cradle Catholic. I was raised in the faith. Um, and in college, I went through this, I went to a secular university and I went through a period of sort of skepticism. Uh, uh, you know, I had taken all the typical, you know, um, secular philosophy classes that would, you know, lead one away from the faith. Um, and I didn't really know how to um, intellectually combat a lot of these things, even though a lot of them were you know, arguments that, you know, you hear all the time that are easily refutable, but I just didn't have the tools. And so uh, I wanted answers because I wanted to know, you know, what is true about reality. And so I started to read more. I got uh, hooked on Thomas Aquinas pretty quickly. Um, his five <laughs> ways in particular were especially formative for me. And then I went to, after teaching at a grammar school, a Catholic grammar school for a few years after graduation, I went to graduate school. Um, I hold a master's in theology from Christendom College, an STB and an STL from the Dominican House of Studies, and now, uh, God willing, um, I'll defend my dissertation uh, within the next few months. So, Congratulations. Thank you. What got you interested in this particular area? I mean, my last name's Kelly. There's so much alcoholism in my family, and, and it, we talk about it very frequently as though it's a genetic kind of inherited thing. It's just so common. Uh, but your article really opens us up to looking at this scourge in, in a new way. What got you interested in uh, exploring it, especially, especially through Aquinas, not the most uh, apparent uh, resource when thinking about treating addiction? Yeah, totally. Um, so a couple of things, and for the first one you you already mentioned, namely the the way in which this is so common um, in today's world, in the modern world, we just see it all over the place. Um, it affects rich and poor and religious and skeptics and young and old. Um, it, it just, it doesn't seem to... Um, really observe any sort of uh, inhibitors like that, like that you would expect. Yeah. Um, also, also, I noticed it's interesting, uh, the the story of St. John Mark Zhi Tianzang, 
who is a uh, Chinese martyr in the late 18th century, or excuse me, late 19th century, mm -hmm. uh, who was beheaded uh, for the faith under the persecution and the, bo the Boxer Rebellion. And this, this particular saint was an, an opium addict for 30 years. Um, and he was hooked at, a early, at a very young age. He was a young doctor who treated uh, the poor for free. And he got hooked on opium and he would go to his confessor and, and confess the sin, you know, regularly every day, every other day, every week. And at a certain point, the confessor said, listen, uh, I don't want you to come back to me until you can show me that you have a firm purpose of amendment. Mm. Um, and as it happens, as the story happened, that St. Mark was, he was not able to recover from his opium addiction um, until, until the very point of his death. And so he went out, he went out uh, he, throughout his life without the Eucharist, um, mm. without confession for 30, for 30 years, right? Wow. And, and yet he was um, beheaded for the faith. He refused to renounce faith in Christ. Um, and it's just an astounding sort of act of heroic virtue that in a person for all intents and purposes and for all appearances, it might seem like this is just the first kind of sinner who would, you know, renounce the faith. You know, he really doesn't believe or he doesn't really love God. But we see how this is clearly false. Um, and his story um, is an arresting one that I think demands a lot of, you know, investigation and inquiry. Well, now, I think it's really interesting too the the pairing of this extraordinary faithfulness with this extraordinary weakness or failure. And that's pretty much all of us. You know, we're all a, some kind of combination of great strength and weakness. So I didn't know that about him. That's a great little detail to have. What, yeah. what is his name again? Where we want to put that in the show notes for our listeners. Yeah, his name is St. Mark G. Tianzang. It's, uh, it's Chinese. So uh, the G is J-I-T-I-A-N-X-I. I think A N G. I think is the spelling. Uh, his his feast day is is uh, July 9th. Mm. Um, so, but uh, you had, you had also asked about Thomism uh, and and addiction, and this is really interesting because you know there's a way in which I think the tools of philosophy and theology through Saint Thomas. Uh, provide us certain categories that a lot of modern people, namely, we'll, hopefully we'll get into more about habit, but, uh, you know, it provides a certain way of thinking about addiction from a, of, from a fresh, although ancient lens that I think a lot of people uh, haven't heretofore really considered. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, one of the things that you, you focus on is having a, a kind of integration uh, in in the lives of people who who are recovering, uh, it's not just sort of developing virtue or something like that, or or getting a habit, but it's it's integrated knowledge. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, a couple things come to mind when you talk about integration. The first is, in certain ways, addiction is a sign of an unintegrated person. Um, and if you think about, you know, what the great philosophers of old, you know, Aristotle and Plato, they were on to this two, 2,000 or more years ago. Uh, when, they, when the woman, Plato talks about, you know, formation of the youth, good formation of the youth and, 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 and good music and a good education, mm -hmm. he already saw that the way in which we're formed in youth has massive uh, consequences for our, for our adult life. In fact, um, you might even argue, one way of interpreting Aristotle and St. Thomas is that without 
without grace, um, how could any of us who haven't had um, a very good you know, upbringing, how do we become virtuous without grace? It seems on Aristotle's account, it seems unlikely. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this business about integration uh, in uh, in our youth is that this has been confirmed by a lot of the psychology. Um, we now know uh, very well, it's been very well documented how trauma in early um, years uh, has a profound uh, disorienting and disintegrating effect on the human soul, uh, such that people that have been traumatized in youth tend to go through life um, experiencing a lot more anxiety, depression. Mm-hmm. They have a harder time connecting with other people. And it's interesting because this inability to sort of make loving connections and bonds with other people is precisely the void into which addiction tends to find itself, right? Because there's a way in which addiction can be seen as a symptomatic um, of the soul that isn't integrated, that isn't, that doesn't feel like it is loved or has access to normal sort of human uh, needs, spiritual needs, like the ability to find connection um, and communion and family and and friendship with other people. Mm -hmm. It's one of the interesting things about your articles. You point out that a lot of people will, uh, especially if they're trying to moralize it or or even medicalize it, will uh, treat addiction as a sort of uh, ungovernable attraction to pleasure, but as you point out, it's not really about pleasure, but instead it's what you've been talking about. A, a More kind like of coping. Yeah, coping. Or, or avoidance even. Or yeah, ersatz connection to people. I think, mm-hmm. you know, you quoted one one person who suffered uh, from alcohol addiction, uh, you know, talking about how this was the you know, the gateway to, to, uh, to getting along with people or something like that. Uh, and you say it goes a lot, it goes further than that. It, it goes into a feeling of connection with God as well. Oh yeah. Big time. And I think that, I think perhaps if I had to, uh, you know, say like, what is the biggest myth of addiction? I think it's just what you just said, Dave. It's, it's, People that haven't that aren't familiar with it, and there are many uh, who fit into that category, assume that these are hedonists. You know that mm-hmm. that the uh, the addict is nothing other than a pleasure monger who um, is morally reprehensible, uh, is a bum. You know this mm-hmm. kind of a thing. When when really. I mean, if you think about the life of an addict, what is it? It doesn't look like a hedonist. Sure. I mean, these are people that are often on the streets. Sometimes they are, um, you know, the intoxication can can wreak havoc and roughshod over their lives. Uh, and they're just not feeling pleasure. In fact, pleasure plays, I mean, it plays a role for sure, but it's it's by far not sort of like the, the primary part of it. Most of it is misery. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, so to say mm-hmm. that, that this is simply another sin against temperance is really wrong. It's interesting when you talk about how we might typically judge someone who's an addict, but I have a lot of personal experience with very high-performing addicts, people who are exceptional, uh, coming into the office every day with a hangover or, you know, whatever. I mean, that's almost as common. Uh, So people can be very high-functioning and also suffer with this terrible... Uh, misery. Um, And I think one of the things that your article does that I found so helpful was not trying to just parse it out simply as either, oh, I was born this way, it's a genetic thing, and therefore I just have this predisposition and oh, poor me, I'm just going to have to manage it, or you're just going to have to accept that I was born this way, Mm -hmm. or going the other way and saying, 
uh, that it's it's only about personal weakness or failure. Can you can you give us sort of a brief overview of how you frame this um, in a much more complex way? And then maybe that that that'll be a, a way to enter into the discussion and the helpfulness of Thomas's use of habit as category. Yeah. So you just hit on the, the sort of the heart of the matter there, um, because the question of what is addiction is one that has been uh, sort of debated for over over 100 years. I mean, basically, throughout the 20th century and going into the 21st century, um, medical you know people in the medical fields in the early as early as the early 20th century were already calling it you know, a disease. What's interesting is the public campaign to sort of uh, readjust the public opinion this started in the early 60s and into the 70s and it kind of prolonged throughout the latter half of the 20th century now into the 21st century such that um, they they really have convinced a lot of people um, and this is sort of like the still you might say the um, status quo in the medical community is that addiction is is a brain disease but there are um, there are some serious problems uh, with that hypothesis. Um, so the, 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 basically the argument, they, they, there are two, two, two parts of it. First of all, they'll say, okay, so addiction, you know, uh, attachment to substances or behaviors changes the structure and function of the brain. Uh, and this is, you know, we see this in other brain diseases, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and the rest of it. Um, uh, and then the second thing they'll say is, well, you can also see it in genetic, uh, you know, out certain alleles are expressed. The D2R2 allele they've mentioned are is this one genetic uh, mutation that um, basically inhibits dopamine reception. And so that makes, you know, alcohol or drugs all the more sort of attractive. Now, that, that, that is true, but there, there, there are interesting problems. So first of all, um, there are a lot of behaviors that change the brain. I mean, as we know that the science is very clear that we know, uh, you know, not the brain isn't just plastic in the early years, it's, it's basically plastic throughout our entire life. So yes. um, if you have vicious habits, there's hope still. I mean, we can still reform. Um, but what's interesting is, let's just say that you have the habit of, you know, playing the cello or the violin, or if you're a musician, this has also been well documented that musicians' brains look different from average people. Now, would we say that, oh, this person has the disease of the cello or the violin or right. the piano? Obviously not, right? We have all kinds of different, you know, uh, habits that alter the structure and function of the brain. And what's interesting is uh, they'll say, well, that's true, but addiction impairs. And that's true to a certain extent. Addiction does impair, but not in the same way uh, that things like Parkinson's uh, will impair. For, for example, I mean, you might have impairments, you know, after, you know, getting, um, you know, drunk after a night of drinking, but that you can sort of recover from that. And then thereafter, your brain readjusts to a kind of a normal level. Okay. Um, so, and then with, with the, the genetic arguments, uh, you can see how at best the D2R2 allele only manifests in a predispositional sense. So it's not as if you, if you have this allele, you are condemned to become an addict. Uh, it, that almost certainly is not the case in the same way. That it, so, so if you got Down syndrome, fististic fibrosis, if you have this genetic uh, maladaptation, you immediately have this disease, which is just completely intractable, barring medical intervention. Finally, what's interesting is most addicts 
don't recover in medicalized settings. They tend to recover in AA groups or even on their own. Yes. Um, and so these are, these are serious issues for the disease hypothesis. However, what's interesting is the disease model gets us, has gotten us places that have been very helpful as a society. So um, we've, it's gone a long way in reducing stigma for a lot of addicts, you know, sort of, because there are things that the disease model does get right. It is true that it does change the brain and it does erode human freedom. That's true. And so, uh, especially for those of us who are involved in moral theology and ethics, uh, that's incredibly helpful. Now, with the, with the alternate sort of perspective, namely uh, the free choice or the moral model, it kind of gets wrong what the uh, um, disease model gets right, um, insofar as it doesn't take into account these biological and chemical things. But it is true that um, addiction isn't just a biological um, function. It clearly involves human volition and human freedom. Um, but so there's a way in which the, uh, in, my, in my article what I'm trying to show, is that uh, the habit, the, the, the category of habit that we get from St. Thomas and Aristotle does a great job of kind of merging these two uh, elements together. And insofar as habits, we know is sort of embedded in the structure of our biology, but it also includes and is shaped by our volitional action, our free action as humans. Um, and so uh, that's, I think, was sort of like a, a, an interesting linchpin that, that brings things together without being overly simplistic about it. Have you ever read something about the Catholic faith or a topic by a great writer or theologian or philosopher, and you wish that you could personally ask them about something they'd said or how they got to their conclusions? We experience this at the Logos Journal Daily. And while we have the opportunity to learn more from that person, it's not a conversation that only a few people should be able to have. We think a lot of you would be interested in knowing and learning more. The Logos Journal and our St. Thomas Catholic Studies friends and supporters need your help to do this. It takes a good deal of effort to get the access and produce a podcast that is meaningful and helpful to you. We hope that you'll go to our podcast website, patreon.com backslash deep down things to become a monthly subscriber. For as little as $5 a month, you can be a podcast patron and in return get access to some really great bonus content, like online access to the journal articles we discuss, additional spiritual reflections, and bonus episodes offered by Father Byron Hagen and Father Bryce Evans, great friends of Logos and priests in the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. That's patreon.com backslash deep down things. You know, you, uh, well, for one thing, I, I have to note, my son plays the bagpipes, so that some people have described that as a disease. <laughs> well, uh, but that may be the exception. Uh, but but, I, but I, I, like, I like the way you've laid this out, and, you know, you've introduced, you know, this topic of habit again. Uh, you, you, make, you make a lot of distinctions uh, in, in your article about this, and one of them is between disposition and a habit. Uh, and I think that's, that's a kind of important one for thinking about this, particularly in these t terms you're talking about, which take into account both the, our, our embodied existence and the pressures that we have from inside, as well as our freedom. Could you speak a little bit about that difference? Yeah. So this is straight out of St. Thomas. I mean, he clearly sees this um, when he distinguishes between a disposition, which is 
uh, and, and, and a habit. So habits are strongly embedded within us. And so Thomas is clear that to change a habit, it's a very, it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, you know, you really have to sort of marshal your inner resources to kind of figure out how, okay, well, how am I going to reform? Uh, and and, and uh, with dispositions, though, these are things that come and go very easily throughout a person's life. I mean, for, for example, if you have the habits, or excuse me, the disposition, you know, of calling people dude, you know, like if you're a frat boat bro, and you're, you come out of the frat, and then you enter the professional world, and you all of a sudden have to, you know, be, be more professional, uh, that's, not that difficult to, to change, but you know, let's say that you're a long time English speaker um, in America. I mean, that's been so built into you to kind of go into another country and try to function, you know, in France or in, in Spain or whatever, uh, you might find yourself slipping into uh, English just by, 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 by virtue of the habit. Um, and so that's, that's sort of like the difference. So I'm trying to argue that, you know, addiction um, is a habit because of it's not only is it a habit, it's, an ex, it's the most extreme habit uh, that a person can have and, and, and almost always the most difficult uh, to reform precisely because what's interesting when I say complex, I mean that there are certain that the nature of addiction tends to um, encompass the entire human person. Um, uh, for reasons, namely because of the way in which it's seeking deeply human needs mm -hmm. that just aren't being met um, mm -hmm. in, in people. Whereas, you know, uh, even, even our attachments to things like English or whatever your uh, habit may be, if you're a bagpipe player or a musician, it's like mm -hmm. you could stop playing the bagpipes and, and you, would, you would feel the itch to come back to it. But eventually, um, you know, you would you would put it aside, uh, but but addictions are much more difficult. Um, and, and and why? Well, because it's not just the musical part of us; it's it's the most human part of us. It's the part of us that wants so dearly to connect to other people and to be loved and to shown love and to be feel loved by God. So, what do you think about the role of grace in all of this? I mean, it's you know, as you point out, you know, one of the strikes against the disease model is that people. People often find healing from from addictive habits through through groups or even through their own. They just finally find that they can't stand themselves the way they are and they want to be something else. Um, is is grace itself a part of this conversation? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, I think it's indispensable. I mean, it, it's funny because I mean, uh, even non Christians, non Catholics, you know, that recover, they kind of struggle with the nomenclature as to how do you describe the power that you experience when you go to a 12-step meeting or when you are able to move beyond this, this habit that's riddled you for so many years, how do you, how do you put a word to that? And, and, and in the Christian nomenclature, we call that grace. You know, the, the, there's a reason why uh, the 12-step groups have taken on a decidedly spiritual uh, outlook um, because, you know, the, when I was talking about Aristotle and Plato, I mean, I think that that's very real. I mean, great without grace, uh, it's, it's, I mean, I don't, I don't see how one could re ultimately recover. I mean, you, maybe people could recover and they say they wouldn't chalk it up to grace, maybe if they were a devoted atheist and they just didn't want to admit that there was such a thing. But uh, by faith, we know that uh, we live in a world that is sort of shot through with the grace of Christ. And insofar as we're able to get access to that power, therein lies an extremely powerful uh, modality to find healing. It's interesting um 
my the program that I went through for spiritual direction is Ignatian in its um, character. And you can so easily map Ignatian exercises onto the 12 steps. <laughs> I mean, there there's a direct overlay. It's uh, So it's very, you know, if I have directees who come in with addiction in their background, they find it very easy to jump into Ignatian meditation because they've already been practicing so many disciplines that are immediately uh, overlaid and applicable. Uh, so I, I find that very interesting, and I'll often, just uh, as an anecdote, uh, and have a number of former addicts, no longer practicing addicts, who converted as a result of the experiences that they had in 12-step rooms uh, because of that sort of immediate sort of overlay. So um, really interesting, important uh, um, to recognize the applicability of, of 12 steps and and what they have attached themselves to already existing through Ignatius and other spiritual masters. I just find that very interesting that we kind of land at the same place. Oh, totally. And if I may, if I may jump in there, it's like, We've seen it in Ignatius. We've also seen it in other spiritual masters. I mean, look at you know uh, Therese of Avila, right? The the seven castles. Or, Augustine. Or August, Augustine is <laughs> yeah. the maybe the best of all because yeah. I mean, gosh, he was an addict before we even had the word. Well, um, and the yeah. the essay white book, which is sort of like the big book for uh, those who are suffering with sexual addiction, quote Augustine all yep. over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that's another, that's like a, the quintessential example of the, you know, the, the one that maybe, you know, struggles with, with sin, but God, God, you know, God never gives up on them, and, and, they, and they, they become great saints. Mm -hmm. so, so do you see in this conversation, I mean, we hope that your article will have, have an effect on this conversation. Have you, I know you relied on some, some uh, writers who are thinking along these lines. Do you see do you see this conversation, which, as you pointed out, is a hundred years old at least? Do you see it going in a in a healthier direction? Perhaps this more more uh, balanced, integrated, integrated, <laughs> habit-driven uh, uh, way of thinking? No, totally. I, yes, absolutely. I think that there's a new wave of research that's been going on for at least the past fifteen years. Um, and I didn't. I was. The, I, I wasn't able to get into all of them in my article, but you know, mm -hmm. I. I there are wonderful, and, they, and what's interesting that you know this word integration, I think, is so apt, precisely because we see people coming from all over the all over the place. You know, medical doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists, theologians, philosophers, sociologists. I mean, what what you, what you were seeing? <laughs> po yeah, po right. Poets. They they they're able to describe it and the subject the subjective experience of addiction in an incredibly gripping way. Um, and and what what we're seeing though is that. Um, uh, they're they're kind of coming together. I see a lot of convergence in the recent research. Uh, you know, people um, that have been influenced from upon my own thought. You know, for instance, uh, Kent Dunnington, who's a philosopher at Biola, is Protestant, uh, but very helpful. Also, um, Gabor Matei, who's a Canadian physician, who's done a lot of work on trauma, and he too frames that he he avoids the dichotomy of disease and and choice. Um, other people like Bruce Alexander, who um, is a retired Canadian psychologist, has done a lot of work on the, the, his his. In, this is interesting because we've, we've said much about how rampant addiction is in modernity, and and Alexander's research has shown well. 
why is that? What is it about modernity that tends to elicit so much addiction? And his his work is, is all about <laughs> yes, right, exactly. Uh, um, you know, the modern world, modernity is really good at some things, but it's absolutely awful at certain other things. For for instance, we're really really good at technology, and and we're really good. Uh, we tend to emphasize you know cl- in classical liberalism, autonomy, uh, you know, self sort of self driven, self self um, destination. Um, you know, kind of like being able to be your own man, to be your own sort of like pioneer. But what, then, and there's a way in which there, there, there's the truth to that, you know, man is, you know, not just collapsible to the community, but it tends to uh, divorce man from precisely community and friendship and family and, and God, you know, modernity is all about, you know, being free in a total uh, libertine sense of that word. But we really, Aristotle was completely right. We are social. And in Genesis, you know, man, it's not good that man be alone, right? Mm-hmm. It, we're, we're deeply, uh, um, you know, social um, creatures that really need each other to flourish. And modernity just has, it's not something that we uh, specialize in, where we tend to be great at being autonomous, but not so good at um, everything else that's most deeply human. Yeah, Benedict talks about the art of being human and the essence of it, man's communal nature sort of lying mm-hmm. at the at the bottom of that uh, artistic expression of being human. And I just love the way that you sort of described modernity as being really excellent in some areas and just completely falling down in others. And uh, I love to see all of the interdisciplinarity that is being applied to this uh, a plague, uh, just knowing well, so many people personally who have suffered from it, reading your article sort of renewed me in hope of of how we as the faithful are going to be able to address uh, uh, those who suffer from it. Yeah, and I, and I would just say it to, you know, it's like the integration and the interdisciplinary nature of this debate is really important, and it speaks to precisely the complexity that mm-hmm. is addiction. I mean, it, it, it addresses... Uh, our biological, our physiological, our sociological, our spiritual nature. I mean, up and down, it's the most, it's, it's in some ways the most human thing you can kind of understand because it's really speaking to uh, what is most deeply needed by the human person. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. where are you in your PhD? Are you pretty much finished with your uh, writing the dissertation? Do you have plans for its publication? Where can we yeah. find more of your so, work? Yeah, I'm I'm in the latter. I'm in sort of in the last stages of it. I'm on the cusp of a draft. Um, I have I'm in my last chapter, and so my director, uh, Father Mancini, you know, has said, okay, I need you to fin- just finish the draft and send it to me, and then we'll kind of go from there. But um, you know, hopefully, you know, defense within the next few months. You know, hopefully, maybe at the end of the summer would be wonderful. Um, and then afterwards, you know, I definitely want to pursue publication within the next year after that. Mm-hmm. So. Well, Father Mancini is also a Logos contributor, so I would trust his, <laughs> I would trust his judgment as well. Yes. So I that's do. fantastic. Where can we find more of your work then? Uh, do you, you've, obviously, this is sort of a cutout from some, some of your big project. Uh, do you have a place where we can, our uh, listeners can find you? Not at the moment. I'm not. I, I'm afraid I don't have much of an online presence. But yeah. uh, you can certainly email me bjcipher at gmail dot com, um, and I would be happy to uh, have a dialogue with anyone. Fantastic. We'll put that in the show notes for sure. Okay. Well, that, that's a really good place to end. This has been a fabulous discussion, and, and it's a very important topic for today. That you know, looking at the statistics 
on uh, the number of overdose deaths, mm-hmm. you know, that have been growing and growing. I mean, clearly indicates that there there's a lot of problems with addiction that are that are going to very very dire places. Uh, and perhaps a way of thinking about this that takes into account uh, all sides of the question, and particularly the the place of grace and the place of God's help, and a in better understanding of the human person, looking at the human person with a greater fullness, which the church is an expert in doing. So I love how you've married these things together, brought them together. We need we need that vision. Mm-hmm. So, well, we thank you very much for your article and for your time uh, talking to us. Thank you, Bradley. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you, Liz, for uh, being here again. Delightful, delightful conversation. Delightful indeed. And we thank you, the listeners, for joining us for another great episode of Deep Down Things. And this is a partnership between Logos Journal and the Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Uh, We hope that you'll visit our website, patreon.com backslash deepdownthings. Uh, You'll be able to see the show notes, perhaps get extras if you become a patron. Uh, and do that. Become a patron of the show and continue the conversation. And we thank you very much again, and God bless.